I'm Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 17 of Pop. We're back with part two of our conversation with audio engineer, musician, and quote-unquote producer, Steve Albini. In part one, we concentrated on his work at his Chicago recording studio, Electrical Audio. We discussed how he records only on analog tape, in large part because he thinks that's the only medium that guarantees a recording's long-term survival. Yet he also praised how digital technology has democratized recording and distribution. We start part two by diving into the most famous album that Steve Albini produced Nirvana's In Utero. Kurt Cobain reportedly wanted Albini on board because he admired his work on the Pixies' Surfer Rosa and the Breeders' Pod. the recording of In Utero went relatively smoothly, but later there were reports of the label being unhappy with the mixes. Scott Litt, who'd produced several R.E.M. albums, wound up remixing the two album songs that became singles, Heart Shaped Box To Albini, much of the reporting about this album and its supposed controversies has been flat out wrong. Did Nirvana succumb to label pressure to remix those singles? Anyone who would even ask that question, Albini says, obviously doesn't understand how real musicians think. I may be guilty of this offense during our conversation. We also discuss his work with the surviving Nirvana members on the new 20th anniversary In Utero mix that came out in 2013. Side note, yes, In Utero is almost 29 years old. The changes include the elimination of a cello part in Dumb. How does Albini feel about reopening the book on projects that had been considered finished? Then there's his relationship with the music industry. He refuses to take a percentage of artists' royalties, otherwise common practice among big-name producers. Do fellow producers resent him for leaving money on the table and driving down prices? Do the major labels want to hire him more because he's such a bargain? Why does Albini consider these notions laughable? Finally, we talk about how far he's come since he was a Northwestern undergraduate wanted to make music, and then a young, outspoken engineer who came down hard on artists he considered sellouts. Hey man, I wanna have a fight with you. Have his judgments tempered over time? Has Steve Albini become a mellow guy? He's still passionate about music, and he'll likely inspire you to be as well. Here's part two of the Carol Pop Conversation with Steve Albini. Thank you for part two on this. No problem. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to get back with you about because we were, you were talking about the in utero twentieth uh, anniversary and that and you were saying that that's the one that feels the most like what it felt like when you were in the room. Are you yeah. talking about the two thousand thirteen mix or are you talking no. about the remaster? The remaster of the original album is, for my money, like the best possible representation of those sessions. The the remix album that was done in 2013 was an attempt by the surviving members to sort of broaden the experience of that record for people who were already intimately familiar with it. Like, well, let's see what it sounds like if we stick that extra guitar solo in there, or let's see what it sounds like if we add that backing vocal we got rid of, or, you know, there was a percussion track we gave up on. Let's throw that in there and see if it's any, you know, see if it's a value, like that sort of thing. Basically just like, stepping through the record and making a different choice at certain junctures where there were active decisions made, like some stuff just plays out normally. Like you've got a three-piece band with, you know, a a vocalist, that's going to be the meat and potatoes of the song, you know, but sometimes, okay, there's a second guitar there. 
we chose not to use that second guitar. Why did we choose not to use that second guitar? Oh, it sounds a little sour in these parts, but you know, that gives it a certain perverse energy. Well, let's throw it in there this time, you know, that, that sort of thing. The idea was if you were already intimately familiar with the record, it would be difficult for you to have a new experience with it. You could have a slightly better experience with a better sound quality or whatever. Right. But your everything about the everything about it would be familiar. And specifically, Chris Novoselic had had the experience of listening to a Doors remix that had been done for a surround edition of a record. And because of that, there was random crap in different parts of the of the room um you know in a surround mix they they felt obliged to make use of those speakers behind your head and the ones under right. your head or whatever so they were just sort of randomly sticking elements in those speakers and so chris novoselic had an, the experience of listening to a, a record that he was intimately familiar with and hearing something new and that that was engaging to him and so he wanted to see if he could, like specifically wanted to see if he could create a new experience for people who were already intimate with the album. And so that's that was the function of the 2013 mix. Nobody, absolutely nobody would say or thinks or or thought that the program was to make a superior version. With the It wasn't like the Francis Coppola ultimate version of Apocalypse <laughs> Now or something. It was just a different version. Of exactly. It. The, it, it was it was it's not the director's cut. It, it was right. uh, it was like the Shakespeare has the quarto and the folio versions of some some of his texts where this one was before revision, this one was after revision, or this one was published and this one was rejected or whatever. And there's, that's sort of what they're, what they were going for here was like, you get another bite at the apple of having a new experience with a record that maybe already means the world to you, you know? And you were, you were intimately involved in that. I mean, you were like, it was you and the two of them basically and Pat Smear. It was me and the three, I mean, Pat Smear was there as, yeah. as an inter integral part of the whole thing. Like, right. um, and it was the, me and the three of them going through the songs one by one, finding things that we thought could be highlighted or changed or elevated. And then I would make a, if like, I think for the very end of that mixing process, Dave and Pat had to leave for something. So I was sending them reference material um, by this device called this device called the internet. And mm. they would listen to it and, you know, put commentary and, and give us advice. And then we would take that comment, those comments on board and make another edition, another version, and then send that off to them for revision. And so it was a more cyclical process at the very end. It was a more iterative process at the very end. But for the beginning, they were all three sitting on the couch, you know, exactly the same way they had been 20 years earlier, like telling telling me what to do, basically. When this idea was proposed to you, what was your feeling about it? Um, I, I'm game for anything. Like if, you know, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a weird perspective that people who are in the audience have where they feel like they're take on a band's output is the legitimate one and that the band shouldn't like interfere with their experience of the band's music and i come at it from the other perspective of being in a band my whole life and knowing that my band internally is going to have a logic that will allow us to reach some conclusions or decisions and what other people outside that group have to say about it it means fuck all you know, so my perspective has always been you get to do whatever you want with your own band. And if the general public has an opinion on it or if critics have an opinion on it or music historians or a, an undergraduate, <laughs> um, you know, with a, a special project on Nirvana has an opinion on it, like they're welcome to their opinions, but they don't count <laughs> as far as the decision-making right. is concerned, you know? So when the members of the band who are in the band want to do something with their band, they get to do it, you know? 
Right. Uh, and I'm happy to help. And the idea of revisiting this material, was was there something, given just, just all of the, the talk about the mixes and stuff at the time, was it, was it kind of refreshing for you to sort of go back to this and go back to those well, tracks just to try to reassemble it? I mean, the remix project had a very specific goal, which was to create something new and something slightly different from the original recipe. So like Dumb gets loses its cello part from the part of it, and everyone's like, where's the cello? Exactly, like sort of denuding something of a decoration reveals something about the structure, things like that. Um, but so that, that was the brief, was to do something different on each song, even if it's something marginal, just do like find another avenue that wasn't explored and give it a shot, you know? So that was the brief on the on the remix album, and I, I was happy to do it. But at every turn, I, you know, the thing that impressed me was how good the raw material was. Like, like the the performances were fucking fantastic, and the the sounds that the band dreamed up for themselves to execute this music, like their choices were really great and invigorating. And the the just the overall quality of the project, like I was just struck with that over and over again. Like you guys did a great job on this record, you know. Right. And uh, as far as like the critical stuff about me being involved and my aesthetic not being appropriate for the band, I mean that's all bullshit. That was bullshit <laughs> in the beginning. It 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 pertain it re remained bullshit. And you know it's all water under the bridge between me and the band. Like our relationship survived through that you know, which I, I credit them, you know, because I could have been a petty little bitch about it quite comfortably, but, you know, they were magnanimous and they were fair and they were even tempered about everything. And they saw that they had like split responsibilities. Like, yeah, their music was the livelihood of a bunch of people that, that they worked with and they didn't want to, they didn't want to like, breed a scab with the people that they were going to be working with every day. So they got along with those people and they, you know, made a record that they were proud of on their terms, you know, so, and I'm, I'm a hundred percent behind all of their decisions. So that, that whole thing, like that, all the public relations stuff, I mean, it was all noise. It was all bullshit. It didn't affect the music. It didn't have any effect on the ultimate, on the decisions the band made on the record. It didn't, you know, they were under incredible pressure. Don't get me wrong. Right. But if you look at what actually happened, what actually happened was they made a record on their own. They chose to remix a, a couple of songs and change some elements on their own. Other people happened to be yapping at them from the outside during that time, but they made all their decisions. And the record that went into the stores was the record the band wanted you to hear. And I'm 100% down with that. There is a popular mythology that the record label made them change some things. And I think, I, I think somebody needs to say unequivocally, that's just not true. That didn't happen. The band, the, the record label and their management and all those people, they're fucking idiots and they, they don't make music. And they had opinions. They had ignorant opinions about what the band was right. doing internally. But like I said, every band has its own internal logic. And they worked through what they thought of their own music and made some decisions about how they were going to proceed with their own record. And that's how it went. You know, I can't find fault with that. That's a perfectly normal way for a band to behave. That's an honorable way for a band to behave. You know, at the same time, a band is going to internalize some of those notes they're getting from the record company and that they're like, well, we want the record company to be happy. They're experts of this. So maybe we do this on these two songs that we're putting out as singles and so, sweeten it so, a little bit what, or that sort of thing. But so what you're doing right now is what I just described. Someone who's not in the band, someone who doesn't make music, someone who's not part of the, who's not enculturated into the notion of creativity as a part of a band, postulating what might have happened in the minds of, um, of musicians. Exactly. Right? That's exactly that's, what I'm doing. Guilty. That's what you're doing. Right. And I'm telling you, you're wrong. The band made their own decisions based on their own logic and of course, they are going to hear the carping and the complaints of the people that they work with. But it's 
knowing that, I think it's unfair to say that they were weak-willed enough that 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 they would allow that to change their minds about their own music, right? That's my beef. My beef is that people assume that a band like Nirvana working within a corporate structure is in some way obliged to do what they're told. And that's absolutely not the case with respect with respect to Nirvana. That is one of the things that made them different and special. Right. But, the, but using weak-willed as a term, you could also say they were open-minded. I mean, there are different ways you can characterize that. I mean, I mean, do you think that they just listened to those mixes that you had and they thought, oh, you know what, we think Heart Shape Box and All Apologies should be remixed in this way that's a little more radio-friendly because that's what we want, and we would have thought that without any input from anyone? I had a conversation with Kurt after he brought the Masters home and played them for everybody, and, everybody, and the, the first words out of his mouth were, they all hate it, right? <laughs> And then mm-hmm. we had a, a more involved, and we laughed about that because we both knew that they'd made a great record. And then we carried on in depth, and he had some reservations about a couple of songs, and those two in particular, having to do with the level of the vocals. Um, there was a backing vocal that he wanted to add at some point. Like, so that he had his own opinion and his own perspective on it. And in the process of that conversation, like it, it, it became clear that if that it was an open-ended question, that if we started remixing things, that it could be an endless process, and that then that could be a process open to manipulation by people from the outside. Right. And I thought, okay, let me listen to everything and if i think i can do better then i'm happy to be a part of this if i think that we wrung the sponge and we're done and it's as good as it's going to be and i can't see myself doing better on any of this stuff then i'm i'm going to take about take a powder and you guys can carry on from there and that's what happened like i had a copy of the masters and i listened to everything myself and I felt like I couldn't do any better on anything. Uh, and I thought the the greater risk of getting involved on a process that could be unending should be avoided. And I said, yeah, um, you know, if you guys want to do some more mixes on your own, that's your business. It's your record. But I, I think I think my involvement is done, you know. Right. And then, so, but the version you consider the definitive version is the remastered version of the original album that came out at the 20th anniversary yeah Um, i mean for for my money i mean i heard the original master tapes being played in the studio and that was an exhilarating experience and the closest you can get to that at home is listening to the fancy edition that came out in 2013 right and then and then it included your original mixes of heart shape box and all apologies which to me are pretty exciting to listen to, especially because, you know, you've heard the other one so many times, well, that, but heart, but heart shape box. It's like, I'm, I'm like, Oh, I hear exactly sort of what the two value systems that are sort of in conflict here because the vocals are drier. They're, they're farther back, but the guitar just kind of bursts in both songs. The guitar really bursts out of you and hits you in a visceral way that it doesn't on the other versions. And there's kind of this texture to the tones and the feedback and everything else. And so it's kind of an exciting listen when you're used to the other one, certainly. So what, um, you're, what you're describing is that experience that Chris Novoselic had with the Doors album that gave him the impetus to do the remix version of the album, which is that you heard something on a song that you were familiar with that struck you in a different way, and it seemed novel, and that alone sort of intrigued you. And I'm I'm not being shy when I say, you know, I'm not being demure when I say that Honestly, if you played the mix that I did of one of those songs and the mix that came out on the original record that Scott Litt did side by side, I'm not certain I'd be able to pick mine out instantly. It might take me some time to figure out which one I was listening to. Now, having said that, I'm not into, you know, I, I didn't spend a lot of time internalizing those rec- that record. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't spend a lot of energy, like, on that record the way I would have if I was a a pure fan. 
Um, so I, I'm, and I, I'm not a nostalgic person by nature. So I haven't spent a lot of time in the interim, like reviewing it, but I don't think the differences are as big as everyone is making it out to be. And when you listen to them side by side, it certainly doesn't seem like one of them is trash and one of them is gold. You know, they, they seem like alternate perspectives on a session that was by itself quite, you know, pretty self-defining. Like when you listen to any version of any of those songs, they sound sort of of a type. They sound like they're in the same family. So I don't think, I think the, all the, all the hype and fault are all about the different versions and the different mixes. Right. Grossly overplayed, but it's interesting. And it is, and and there is still an aesthetic difference um, in the approach, even though it's, it's more subtle than people. It's not like, it's not like, you know, the one with the strings and the choirs, you know, it's like, there's still, you know, that band playing that song. It's just like little differences in the effect on the vocal and how, whether, whether at some point when the guitar surge, the vocal is harder to hear because it's like, he's singing over really loud music as opposed to having his voice mixed up. So he's singing in front of really loud music. Yeah. I mean, I, I buy all of that. You know, but I my my point is that I don't think the differences are as dramatic and as right. critical to the either the success or the failure of the project as everybody made out at the time. Was that a sort of pivotal project for you just in terms of you figuring out where to I mean, you've always had a, it seems to me you've always had a pretty good sense of where you are in the whole music industry. But but this was you like being as close to that sort of machinery and, you know, the the recording industry as you've been and and i'm wondering whether you sort of looked at that as sort of a pivotal point on okay this is how i relate to this and this is what works for me and this is what doesn't well if you look at the timeline of the records that i had been working on up to that point and post um you'll see that i worked on a lot fewer big label records after that right so, and I think that that's a that's sort of a marketplace decision. Like the market has spoken. Like the the big record labels were not interested in in buying the potential problems of having me work on a record. Um, and so, like post that album, my working life was reverted to sort of the way it had been leading up to that. Point where it was mostly underground bands, uh, independent labels, independent bands operating completely independently. I mean, very few big label projects after that. And that seemed, at the time, it seemed intentional on the part of the people who were making those decisions. And I know for a fact that some people were told specifically that I they weren't going to be allowed to use me on their records. Uh, so that's, you know, that's another data point there did that piss you off no it's their money they can spend it on whoever they want i mean you, you if you t- take the big picture and it seems a little crazy because you record things quickly the stuff sounds good and you're not taking points on it and so you're a relative bargain compared well, to well, these other hold on a minute there producers. what you just described as an as an aggregate benefit like all of those things are net negatives in the in the mind going going back into the mindset of the mid 90s record boom right the more money you can spend on a record the better because that means you're a player and you can spread that money around within the industry and you can buy the favor of everyone who gets some of that money right it's not your money as a record executive or as someone a project person on the record you're spending money that you that won't cost the label anything because it's coming out of the band's pocket, right? Right. So you are incentivized to spend as much money as possible, right? Because it's the more money you spend, the bigger a player you are, the bigger a splash the record can can make in its advanced publicity. The the you know the bigger it is seen as an event when that record comes out within the industry. Making a cheap record is an insult into those people, right? <laughs> so you've described things that to us in the real world, in the practical, like sort of having to pay our own way manner, those things are benefits. It costs less to make a good record. The record sounds pretty good. It doesn't need to be fiddled with after the fact. Like I'm not 
extracting any additional payment from the band. Like all of those things seem good to you because you're a normal, rational person. Right. In the mindset of a, of a record executive in the 90s, what that means is I'm not going to be able to dole out largesse for this record. I'm not going to be able to become the favorite client of a studio manager. I'm not going to become uh, like another footnote in the career of an A-list producer. I'm not going to be able to engender the the favor and and also acquire the promotional benefit of having a, a, a hit-making team work on this record, a hit-making team that has their own publicists and their own eagerness to make the record succeed, right? So that's that's the, the, the schism there, where you and I in the real world see the way that I do things and the way that I prefer to work as being a net benefit to the band. And that's the reason I keep doing it, is that it is a net benefit to the people with whom I'm the most sympathetic, the bands and the musicians, right? They get the most out of a relationship that with me because they're not spending extra. The records are relatively cheap to make. They get a good product. They don't have somebody fiddling with them, like messing with their heads or messing with their pro- their music or their or their behavior. For someone in the in the music business paradigm, that means I'm not allowing them to use any of their tools of coercion. That means that I'm not allowing them to use any of their little secondary promotional benefits. That means I'm not allowing them to be a player. I'm not allowing them to be a big shot. Do other have you gotten flack from other producers who were like, "Hey, what's what's the business with you leaving all this money on the table? You know, we want our royalties and everything. You know, are you trying oh, to no. change the industry in some bad way?" Or oh no, I mean, the, every everyone is aware that as long as you stay within that paradigm, you get those cookies. You know. <laughs> It's, uh, so nobody's I, afraid you're changing the game. They're just like, ah, oh, that guy. I mean, a lot of them think I'm nuts. Uh, I mean, a lot of like the more the high end pro producer type people think I'm nuts because I've, you know, there are literal millions of dollars that I didn't get because of my ethics. But I'll just point to the fact that I've had a very long tenure as an engineer making records every day. And a lot of them have moved on to fucking trading NFTs or whatever the fuck they do now. You know? <laughs> just, so no, but no one's tried twisting your arm, just like uh, you better, you got to take more, or you're letting the team down, or anything like that. Because you're, they're just oh, like, no, 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 he's off on his own doing his thing. No, everybody makes their own deals. Like all those other people, they they make their own deals, and you know what I what I do doesn't affect them at all. Right. Yeah, I just interviewed. Uh, Shell Talmy, who produced those early Kinks records and yeah. My Generation and the Easy Beats and the Creation. And uh, yeah, he was taking points, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I think that that was his vision of what the producer is. You're, you're taking control of the band and you're bringing in Nicky Hopkins and Jimmy Page and you're doing this, this and this. And of course, you're responsible for it. And he speaks in a way where he's responsible for it, in, which is a contrast to the way you speak, which is I'm here to let the band be what they can be. And there are other producers who are like, I made them, I created their sound. Right. I mean, and you can imagine what sort of personality type would be susceptible to that kind of thinking and want to be a player like that. I'm not one of those people. You know, you can imagine how some of those bands felt when the producer said, no, you're not going to be allowed to play on your own record. I'm going to bring in a ringer. You know, you can imagine that conversation and how that must have made them feel. And you can imagine like the how the social fabric of of those bands was not treated with any respect. And like, oh, if we have to get a new singer, we'll get a new singer. You know, that sort of thing. Like, it's just a different way of looking at music. It's either you're either looking at music as a product. And if you have to break a few eggs to get that product, it's nothing. You know, you can't be afraid to get your hands dirty or you're looking at the bands and music as culture and those relationships as personal relationships, as significant as marriages and family. And the music is an expression of that culture and of those relationships. So whatever the music is, is ultimately secondary to the long arc of those 
relationships and those and that part of culture. And that's right. the way I look at it. Like I see the bands and their music and their relationships and the culture as the product. That's what we're working on. We are working on a, a project to advance culture using these relationships and these bonds and this boundless creativity of people that is this innate function of the human experience, right? That's what we're working on. I'm not trying to make a hit single, you know? I, I, have, I have genuinely no interest in the commercial success of any of the music that I work on. I think that is a, a kind of a, a curiosity and it's a, and at times it tells you something about the rest of the world when some things become popular. But that's absolutely not a metric that I care about. And it's absolutely not a goal of mine to achieve some certain status. And because I've avoided all of those perversions of this culture that I'm a part of, that I'm embedded in, that I'm surrounded by, right? then I've been able to keep at it for decades where most people get burned out fairly shortly, fairly quickly. Like they have a, you know, they have a clever gimmick. They run that gimmick a few times. They have a few hits. They kick their heels up, live on the royalties, you know, and I've just never wanted to, to be a part of that. I've never wanted that's, you know, that, that way of looking at music as a, as a product and, it just belittles all of these people who are my peers and the and the people that I've become friends with and the people that I like admire on so many levels. Neil Steinberg, who is an excellent longtime columnist of the Sun Times, was a classmate of yours in college. Yeah. And, and wrote a couple of columns earlier this year where he sort of got back together with you after decades. And yeah. you two had these conversations that were really wonderful to read and had like a lot of, you know, wisdom and shared, you know, kind of been through it sort of observations. Uh, one of yours was that you, you talked about how if you don't have goals, you don't have anxiety. And that if you're not a goal-oriented person, then you sort of set aside all this other stuff, which I thought about because I do like, I, I do get anxious about like, oh, I haven't achieved this or that. It's, have you always felt that way? Or is that something you sort of realized this is what I'm going to do to sort of have longevity and to stay sane? I think everything about my life has been an evolution, you know? And when I first started making records, when I first started toying around with a tape recorder, the immediate goal was to make sound come out of the speaker, you know? And so like, I, I think my goals on a sort of a moment by moment basis are quite small. Like I have a task at hand and I want to solve that task. But in terms of like a, a long arc, like I never imagined that I would have a career in music when I start, got interested in music. Like it just seemed like a fantastic impossibility, right? Music was something that I did because it satisfied a part of me, right? It, it was something that I was doing to, to ease my creative ambitions or yeah, uh, I mean, I think the, the creative impulse is an innate part of humanity. And so making music was my expression of that creative impulse or one of my the expressions of that creative impulse, right? It never occurred to me that it would be a job ever. Then as I got deeper and deeper into it and I started to become more of a participant in more areas of music, you know, first I was doing it for myself and then I was doing it with my friends. And then I was doing it as part of a music scene. And then I was using my other skills and abilities within the music scene to like further the cause or further the effort of the music scene as a, as a cultural force. And then I started to like see making a studio as a resource for the whole of that music scene and the whole of that community. And then I started to see myself as kind of like the steward of this studio and that in so doing, I could like further that effort of being a, a, a being of use, I guess is the way to put it to the music scene and to all these people, like I said, that I admire, you know, and it happened very gradually. 
So it was never the case that I like, you know, sat at home thinking about what I would say at the Grammys or whatever, like that, like, like it just, right. I, I never, I never had a goal in mind because it always seemed like I was engaged in the process of the moment, like trying to get this one gig put together, trying to get the string on my guitar before showtime. You know, like I had one little thing that I was doing every moment and it just sort of one, you know, piece by piece, it built into an occupation. I mean, like in the early nineties, you, you, I think to some extent had a reputation for being combative, or at least those who read the reader or see you sort of feuding with Bill Wyman and going mm -hmm. on about urge overkill, like right. that you were sort of, you know, carrying the, I don't know, torch for the certain set of values. Would you, would you have reacted that strongly now? Or do you, do you feel well, the same like reaction I'm to that sort of thing now? There are a bunch of things at play there. Like in the 90s, you were seeing a sort of a fracturing of the music underground into several tiers of people. There were those who were committed to the, the music and the project of culture. There were those who saw the, their moment to become celebrities of some kind. And those people were following their ambition. And I, I thought it was a clear distinction between people who had those motivations and people who had the motivations of all of the people that I admired around me. And I, I'm, I still see those distinctions, obviously. Um, I am, I feel less embedded in a specific element of culture than I did then. Like at that point, I was part of the post-punk generation, like people who had their minds blown by punk and had then built a very robust, independent music underground, which was functioning on its own, independent of the rest of the music, the, the professional music world, right? And I saw the viability of that independent music world as being critical to the sort of freedom that we were all experiencing within it, right? The, the moment it becomes subordinate to, the moment, moment it becomes like a minor league for the mainstream music scene, then you have to start behaving like them. And I just refuse to do that, right? So that, that was the, the cultural moment that was critical at the time, was that there was a, a, a clear break being made between people who wanted to behave like the mainstream music business, the thing I had been at odds with my entire life, right? There were people who wanted to do that or be like them or in some way garner the approval of that and them. And then there were the other people who were happy tooling along in the independent world, in the underground, which was a perfectly viable, self-sustaining economy, right? Like you could live a comfortable middle-class life only ever playing clubs, only ever releasing records on small labels. It's not the case that you either go broke in the underground or you make it big in the mainstream. That's a, a, that's a false paradigm that's an absolutely false dichotomy that was created as a way as a manipulative tool to convince people that they should graduate into the mainstream music beat scene out of the underground and like i think i my my life in music this studio which has had a very long tenure um the bands i've been in the record labels i've been associated with it with all of them, all of those are evidence that I was right, that the independent music scene, that the underground, that the non-professional class is a perfectly viable existence. You can keep doing it forever. It can be your whole life, right? And it puts a lie to the idea that you have to have to make it big or you're going to disappear and be trash. Well, and a lot of this was happening very close to home because in, you know, Chicago, like 93 or around then you get Smashing Pumpkins breaking out and Urge and Liz Fair. Um, and, uh, you know, so so that was sort of rep and represented, you know, one set of music that was not what you were doing. You know, at the same time, a lot of great bands 
also wanted to make it big and wanted to write themselves a Cadillac or something like that. And they still ended up making good music. So, so it's, there's like, there's, there's the, there's the ambition part, but then there's still the music part. And it seemed like you were, you were down on the music because you thought it was coming from the wrong place. And I'm wondering if you would still well, feel that way trash. as much. It, it was also trash for what it's worth. You didn't like, you didn't like any of it then and you don't like any of it more now. Um, I, I have, I have grown to appreciate um, Liz Fair's first album and especially how important it was to women in the, in the music scene at the time. Um, and uh, I think that as a, as a statement of a, a woman navigating, as she described it, Guyville, I think that's, I think that was a, a an important statement and it and the record has its value right didn't appeal to me that's not important it wasn't for me you know so um yeah that would be a revision in my perspective um and I, I mean the other thing is i don't i don't think it's it's not specifically the fact that i don't like something doesn't shouldn't make other people feel bad about it you know and that some music doesn't appeal to me just means that it doesn't appeal to me. And I can have sort of meta music reasons for not liking something. I think everyone does. Um, but usually you can tell just from listening when something is bad. But, you, but your feeling was like if a rock critic embraces that stuff, that there's something corrupt about that person's thinking. Or that's not how it came facto. No, not de facto. It's when there is, it's, it's when there is an orchestrated effort to achieve public success as opposed to creating something of merit and having success appear, right? Right. You, when you put the cart before the horse, when you have a team of publicists and when you have a high profile, uh, you know, payola placement of your band on gigs and when you have like all these careerist moves being executed you've given the game away right you've told us what matters to you what matters to you is success and popularity on mainstream terms what doesn't matter to you clearly is the music that we have to hear endure on the way to you achieving some kind of celebrity so did you think that like Billy Corgan didn't care about the music as much or did you just not like it as much? The emphasis on career was an insult to those of us who thought a, a career in music would be associating yourself with all of this stuff that had been suppressing our end of culture forever. It's like joining the Republican Party, right? <laughs> if you if you say that what you want is equality and generosity of spirit and a welcoming society, and your tool for doing that is to join the Republican Party, then you were lying about that first bit, you know. What do you do, by the way, to protect your ears? <laughs> That's actually a really interesting topic. Um, my, I, I limit the exposure of my ears to loud noise, but not in musical settings. So, for example, whenever I'm not in the studio, if I'm out in the public, if I'm out in the world and subject to like wind noise, like if I'm on my bicycle, I have earplugs in. Hmm. If I'm in a, a chattering group environment, like if I'm at the airport or if I'm in, you know, when my band is on tour, I'm wearing earplugs basically the whole time when we're in the van, which can be noisy, or when we're in a group setting at a club or whatever, um, when I'm around other people sound checking or, you know, any noisy environment, I'm wearing ear protection, just regular earplugs. But when you're actually on stage with your band, you're not wearing any exactly. protection. Yeah. We don't play at crushing volume. My band, Shellac, does not play at crushing volume on stage. 
We don't have onstage monitors for a start. We just use our own amps and there's a small, there's typically a vocal monitor behind the drum kit. So we can hear Todd, our drummer can hear the vocal cues and we can hear ourselves generally well enough from the PA and from that monitor that we don't need individual monitors. And that's true whether we're on a big stage or a small stage. Um, so our stage volume is comfortably low. Uh, and the other benefit of that is that because we're not using monitors, it sounds the same everywhere. You know, we're not beholden to whatever capabilities of the monitor system there are. And your hearing well, is good still? I guess. <laughs> no, uh, no hearing test should tell you otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I'm avoiding... I'm strategically avoiding having my ear hearing tested and calibrated because I don't want to be introducing doubt into a process that so far I've been able to manage. Um, I'm certain my hearing is not as acute as it was when I was in my 20s or whatever. No one's is. Like right. 24 or 25, your hearing starts to deteriorate a little bit for, for everyone. But um, I have been, I, there is a, a very specific thing that I do. I focus my attention on the elements that I know need to be carefully placed when I'm mixing something, for example. In the same way that you can touch something and know it's there or use the tips of your fingers to feel the contours of it, right? You're, you can um, focus the, or or like if you're, if you see something out of the corner of your eye or in, in your general field of view, you can tell it's there. But if you focus on it using the most sensitive part of your visual spectrum, like the most sensitive part of your vision, you can see more detail in it, right? There is a similar method of hearing where you hear something, you can hear it passively and kind of crudely, or you can focus your attention on it and listen to it in detail. And uh, that's something that I've been doing sort of for my whole career, but I do it now very acutely for those elements that I think might be affected by just normal aging. Right. So high frequency detail, um, small balance decisions, like where you have, you know, one or two dB difference between elements um, you know, there are ways that you can focus your attention on, on those elements that mean that you won't be making gross mistakes. Um, and then you also, you, you rely on other people that are working on the record as well. Like the other people, you know, if the band says that they hear a funny anomaly, you don't blow them off and say, oh, you're, you don't know what you're, what you're talking about. You concentrate on what they're drawing your attention to. And then you can find the the problem that caught their ear as well you know right so that's a that's a that's part of the culture of making a record is like you have to be willing to take other people's hearing on board like if someone says they hear something you have to believe them and then look for it you know right and when you go see a band in a club you're not putting earplugs in or anything if i go see a band for pure entertainment i will have earplugs in most of the time like the whole time leading up to the show the whole time I'm in, you know, if the opening band is not of interest to me, like I'll leave earplugs in for the opening band. Um, you know, if it's a, a band where I want to sort of be overwhelmed by the experience of the music, I'm, I'm not going to be wearing hearing protection to watch a band like that. Um, but I'm, I will wear hearing protection like in, a, in all other noisy environments. Like I play poker for, for part of my income and I wear hear, earplugs at the poker table. And I do that for a number of reasons. One, it focuses my concentration on what's happening and not, I'm not distracted by the chatter and the noise. Um, most of the time, I'm sitting at a table full of assholes whose conversations I do not want to engage in. <laughs> um, there are often, it's, if I'm in, you know, this isn't the case during the COVID era, for example. Like, I'm not going to casinos to play poker in, during the COVID era, but uh, except for a trip to the World Series of Poker during a relative lull in case counts and after everyone had been vaccinated. Like, I'm not in a casino environment very often these days, um, but when I did have to regularly go to a casino to play poker, the noise, the general noise of a casino can be kind of overwhelming. So I was always oh, yeah. 
always wearing earplugs there. Um, and then when I'm traveling, like I said, you know, on an airplane, in an airport, in a crowd, on a bus, whatever, I'm always wearing earplugs in those environments. Yeah. A friend of mine years ago said, oh, I'm, I'm in, going to this poker game that Steve Albini has this poker game. You should come play. And I'm like, I am not doing that. I'm so not going to go lose my money in that situation because that's absolutely what I would have done because I don't really play much. Well, then so. it's a shame you didn't come. But yeah, uh, I know exactly. I could have helped fund, uh, you know, one of one of the next albums or something. But he was probably talking about a very casual poker game that's been running for many years. That's very low stakes, very social poker game that um, during unfortunately, during the pandemic, we haven't been able to do it in person very much. Mm. Um, but it, there is an online expression of it as well, which I think is quite charming. I love I like the way things like that have sort of moved online as a as a. um as a kind of a placeholder for the real world experience. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you talking no to me about all this stuff. Um, you know, I always like talking to you. It's just, it just, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot there and a lot to think about. And uh, I appreciate you continuing to fight the good fight for, you know, good audio and good music. Uh, well, not necessarily you. in that order. So um, <laughs> thanks again. That's a wrap on episode 17 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Steve Albini for being so generous with his thoughts and time over two conversations. You can book sessions with him at Electrical Audio. He's got a lot of happy clients. Now I've got to get my band together. Big tip of the cap to the Carol Pop team, including web developer Marty Rosenbaum and Luke Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, another master of the microphone. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Yeah.